Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 42, Catherine, the Early Years. Last episode, we covered the end of two reigns, that of Elizabeth I, daughter of Peter the Great, and Peter III, grandson of the late Tsar. We also recounted Russia's participation in two global conflicts, the War of Austrian Secession and the Seven Years' War. Russia was now seen as a truly global power, emerging from its murky oriental past. Now, we need to travel back a bit and bring back to life both Elizabeth and the ill-fated Peter III in order to lay a groundwork for the new empress, Catherine II, also known as Catherine the Great. What makes Catherine's story so robust is that we have an incredible historical work, her memoir, which I'll be using along with other books about her incredible life and the 34-year reign. Born on April 21, 1729, Sofia Augusta Frederica was born the daughter of Johanna Elizabeth of Holstein Gottorp and Prince Christian Augustus of Anhalt Zerbst. Sophie was not what you might call a wanted child. Her mother preferred a boy, but that would come about a year later. Johanna shunned her daughter, thinking, thinking that little would come of her. She was sure that Sophie would be married off to some lowly prince within Prussia, or better yet, if we're lucky, in Sweden, where her family was related to King Charles XIII. Her family, while of noble blood, was relatively poor. Her father was a major general in the Prussian army. They lived in a castle in Stetten where they made do with what relatively little they had. But this so-called poverty was still vastly better than the common peasant of the time, but it still made Johanna bristle. She wanted to be part of court intrigues to play political games and to rise above the rank that she had at the time. Sophie was not given much affection by either of her parents, or, as she would write in her memoirs, quote, I was merely tolerated, and often I was scolded with a violence and anger I did not deserve. My father, whom I saw less often, thought I was an angel. My mother did not pay attention to me at all. I find it kind of ironic how so many of the Tsars and Tsarinas of the 16th to the 18th century had such miserable childhoods, like Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, and now Catherine. Figchen, as Sophie was known, was a bold child, and once she was called rather impertinent by Prussian King Frederick Wilhelm I when she was just a mere four years old. Young girl also had suffered through a number of illnesses, such as pleurisy, and a curved spine, the latter cured by four years of excruciating massages and the wearing of a tight corset designed by a so-called bone-setter whose day job was the executioner of Stetten. Not considered a beauty as a child, Sophie grew steadily and intellectually, taking in everything that happened around her. She had brilliant eyes to go along with a long nose and a pointed chin. Her wit and charm were enough to make you forget her physical imperfections, though. Her early education was guided by her governess, Babette Cardell, who she loved, along with a number of other tutors, one of whom was the Lutheran pastor Dow. 
He was frequently enraged with young Sophie, as she always wanted to get rational explanations for church doctrines, instead of accepting them as is. But he had to grudgingly admit that the girl had a remarkable memory and a voracious appetite for knowledge. This was to serve Sophie well throughout her life. One thing that she did not fare well with was music. As she wrote in her memoir, quote, Rarely is music anything but noise to my ears. She was also a tomboy, uninterested in dolls or other things that proper girls did. No, she wanted to be out there playing hard with the neighborhood kids whom she commanded about like Peter did with his boy soldiers at Priobrazhenskoy many years before. She was by all accounts already a born leader. She also loved to travel throughout Prussia with, along with her mother Johanna, dropping in on relatives in Zerbst, Hamburg, Brunswick, Utin, Kiel, and Berlin. In 1739, she accompanied her parents to a party thrown by Johanna's cousin, Augustus Frederick of Holstein Gottorp, the future King of Sweden. At the party, her mother was finally proud of her daughter, as she made conversation with a sickly-looking young boy, one Peter Ulrich of Holstein Gottorp, the grandson of Peter the Great. Almost immediately, rumors flew wondering who would become engaged to be married to the potential heir of both Russia and Sweden. Johanna and Sophie were intrigued by the possibilities of the Russian throne, although the current ruler, Ivan VI, through the regent Anna Leopoldovska, was a pretty strong barrier. But then, on December 6, 1741, that barrier was destroyed as Elizabeth I took over the throne of Russia in a coup. Johanna realized almost immediately on hearing the news what this meant. Elizabeth had been engaged to her brother, Carl Augustus, who had died of smallpox before they could be wed. Still, Johanna knew that her daughter Sophie was now on the radar. In January of 1742, Peter Holstein Gottorp was summoned to the court of the new Empress Elizabeth I in St. Petersburg. She, bereft of a child heir, needed to see if the young boy had the stuff to make him Tsar. Peter was to be the last male descendant of the Romanov line, and he was to be a poor representative. July of 1742 brought more news that seemingly put them on a star-crossed path. Fiction's father was promoted to the rank of field marshal out of the blue. King Frederick of Prussia knew of the possibilities of marriage between his subject and the future emperor of Russia, and he needed to avail himself of a loyal person to further relationship with the burgeoning power that was Russia. Sophie was very aware of the circumstances, writing in her memoirs, For all that I was only a child, the title of queen fell sweetly on my ear. From that time on, the people around me teased me about him, young Peter Ulrich of Holstein, and gradually... I grew accustomed to thinking that I was destined to be his wife. By 1742 in September, things began to heat up as Johanna received a diamond-framed portrait of Elizabeth and in order to have a portrait of Sophie Dunn in Berlin by the noted French artist Antoine Pesny. Russian General Korf 
and Count Sievers were sent to Stetten to meet Sophie and report back to the Tsarina. All this scrutiny made Sophie nervous. She writes, That made me uneasy in my mind, and privately I determined that I should marry him. Because of all the matches proposed, this was the most brilliant. Sophie was still a mere child of thirteen, a child in age, but a child thrust into the high-stakes world of eighteenth-century diplomacy. One of the intriguing passages from my readings about the future empress comes from the translation of the book by Henry Troyat, entitled Catherine the Great. The subject is about Sophie's burgeoning sexuality. Nevertheless, at the age of 13, she was already showing signs of a vigorous sensuality. Neither Babette Cardell nor her mother nor anyone around her had enlightened her about the mystery of physical relations. But for reasons she could not understand, she often experienced a sudden surge of desire, a vague feeling of tenderness, a need for physical contact. Especially at night, the frenzy seized her. Then she would sit astride her pillow, and as she was to write later, gallop in her bed, until her strength was exhausted. These midnight rides stilled her agitation, calmed her nerves. Once the fit had passed, she again became a well-behaved child, preoccupied not with love, but with her career. This was not always easy, because one of her uncles, George Ludwig, charmed by the freshness of this adolescent, was still little more than a child, had begun to court her. Ten years older than she, he bewildered her with passionate declarations and drew her away from her parents to steal a few light kisses. Figchen, flattered, offered no resistance. Did not this prove that she could charm other men beside her father? Why should her little cousin Peter Ulrich be harder to please than her uncle George Ludwig? But the weeks passed, and the Russian court remained silent. As for George Ludwig, driven to desperation by the girl's reluctance, he suddenly asked her to marry him. The fact that they were related was no obstacle. Unions of that kind were not unusual amongst the great aristocratic families of Europe. Figchen hesitated to abandon the Russian dream for the German reality. My parents will not like it, she said. Then she pretended to accept his offer on condition that my father and mother put no obstacle in the way. The uncle's kisses at once became more ardent, but, as she recalls in her memoirs, except for a few embraces, it was all very innocent. George Ludwig contained himself in the hope that time would work for him, and Figchen consented to these childish games, in the hope that they would not last, and that she would receive the longed summons from the North. On January 1st, 1744, a courier entered the castle at Zerbst and handed Sophie's father, Christian Augustus, a pack of mail, with one being addressed to the very high and well-born Princess Johanna Elizabeth of Anhalt-Zerbst. The letter said, By express and special command of Her Imperial Majesty, the Empress Elizabeth Petrovna, I am to inform you, Madame, that the august sovereign desires your highness, accompanied by the princess, your elder daughter, 
to come to this country as soon as possible and without loss of time to the city where the imperial court may be in residence. Your Highness has too much understanding to fail to comprehend the true meaning of Her Majesty's eagerness to see Your Highness here, as well as the Princess, your daughter, of whom one hears so many flattering reports. Johanna and her husband realized what this meant, but they did not share it with young fiction. The letter had express instructions on who was to come along. Sophie's father was not one of them. Also, the trip was to be secret and shared with no one. Within hours, another courier arrived with a letter from King Frederick of Prussia, which said, I will not conceal from you that holding you, as well as the princess your daughter, in particular esteem, I have always wished to arrange a brilliant future for her. I therefore considered whether it not, was not possible to marry her to her second cousin, the Grand Duke of Russia. Figgen spent the next three days wondering, what's up with her parents? Why were they whispering and scurrying about? Then she finally confronted her mother, who responded by asking Sophie what she thought was up. The future Catherine the Great handed her mother a piece of paper with nine words written on it. It said, All omens agree. Peter the Third, your husband, shall be. In the dead of winter, on January 10, 1744, Figchen, along with her parents, set off to Berlin to meet with the king of Prussia, Frederick II. Frederick, now four years into his reign, needed to bolster his border defenses on the north with Russia, and what better way than by having the heir to the Russian throne marry one of his subjects. He was battling against the adviser to Elizabeth, Vestrushev, who wanted Peter to marry Princess Marianne, a Saxon who was also the daughter of the King of Poland. A grand banquet was held, and Sophie was invited to sing at the, sit at the king's table while her parents stayed with the queen, which vexed the consistently jealous Johanna. There, King Frederick began to kindly interrogate the young girl. As she remembered, he asked me a thousand things, talked about the opera, plays, poetry, dancing, and I don't know what else. In short, countless subjects suitable to a girl of fourteen. The company stared in surprise to see His Majesty in conversation with a child. A few days after the Grand Ball, Sophie and her entourage left Berlin, reaching Schwedt on the Oder River. Here she was to say a tearful, good, tearful goodbye to her father, Christian Augustus, who she was never to see again. Her journey to destiny was to begin incognito from here. Her father begged her to stay true to her Lutheran faith. Sophie promised, but knew it was a hollow promise, because she knew if she were to marry Peter, she would have to convert to orthodoxy. Next week, we take you on Catherine's journey to Russia, her meetings with Peter and Elizabeth, her marriage, along with the torturous life with the childish Peter. Now, for this week in Russian history, for the two-week period of March 20th, to April 2nd. In 1326, Ivan II of Russia, Grand Duke of Muscovy, was born. In 1340, 
Ivan I of Russia, also known as Ivan Moneybags, Prince of Moscow, who began the rise of power of the great city, died. In 1462, Vasily II of Russia, Grand Prince of Moscow, also died. In 1479, Vasily III, Grand Prince of Moscow, was born. In 1801, Paul I, Tsar of Russia, is struck with a sword, then strangled, and finally trampled to death in his bedroom at St. Michael's Castle. In 1809, King Gustav IV, Adolf of Sweden, advocates after a coup d'etat. At the Diet of Porvu, Finland's four estates pledge allegiance to Alexander I of Russia, commencing the secession of the Grand Duchy of Finland from Sweden. Also in 1809, Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol, Ukrainian-born Russian writer, was born. In 1854, the United Kingdom and France declare war on Russia to start the Crimean War. In 1867, Alaska is purchased from Russia for $7.2 million, about two cents an acre, by United States Secretary of State William H. Seward. The media call this Seward's folly. In 1873, Sergei Rachmaninoff, Russian composer, pianist, and conductor, was born. In 1881, Modest Petrovich Mussorgsky, Russian composer whose works included pictures at an exhibition and the opera Boris Gudunov died. In 1885, the Battle for Kushka triggers the Panjay Incident, which nearly gives rise to war between the British Empire and the Russian Empire. In 1886, Sergei Kirov, Soviet Bolshevik leader, was born. In 1902, Dmitry Sipyagin, Minister of the Interior of the Russian Empire is assassinated in the Marie Palace of St. Petersburg. In 1943, we have Sergei Rachmaninoff, Russian composer and pianist, dying. In 1958, Nikita Khrushchev becomes Premier of the Soviet Union. In 1968, Yuri Gagarin, Soviet cosmonaut and first man into space, died. And in 1985, Mark Chagall, the Russian-born painter, passed away. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to visit the website at russianrulers.podhoster.com or become a Facebook friend and join the hundreds there at Russian Rulers History Podcast to ask a question, make a suggestion, leave a comment. But as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.